Welcome to the Subject Composition and Light Photography Podcast. Show notes, links and contact details can be found at robnunphoto.com. That's www.robnunphoto.com. SCL is a proud member of the Tech Podcast Network and loads of other great tech podcasts can be found over at www.techpodcast.com. Now on with the show. Welcome to SCL, the Subject Composition and Light Photography Podcast. My name's Rob from RobNoPhoto.com and this is my little audio diary about my journey through the wonderful world of photography. Well, it's episode 203 for the uh, 19th of August 2012 and um, the title of this week's podcast will be An Olympian Effort, where I'm just going to discuss briefly a little bit about um, some of the photography from the Olympics, well not specific photographs, but more of the feel behind it. Maybe a little bit, maybe what we can learn in our own little way. And of course, I'll start off with my car boot bargains from this morning. Well, and I tell you what, it's been one of the best car boots for a long, long time. There's certain pieces of kit that everybody really needs to own pieces of equipment that once you've got them not only change the way you take your photographs the quality of your photographs but also your overall style and I managed to pick something up like that from the car boot this morning yes you've probably already guessed it but I did in fact manage to buy my own 24 to 105 f4 l lens coffee cup mug yes for the princely sum of two pounds i now own my own mug that's shaped like a lens um very good (laughs) indeed you know you see them on ebay and think i would never own something like that but when somebody's got one going for two pounds you do and it's it's a great little copy of a 24 to 105 canon um lens and uh yeah and it keeps your coffee warm what can i say no but Laughing aside, I did get some really good stuff this morning. Um, and it was probably because we've had Valentino over the weekend and um, he was a little bit ill last night. And so he was kind of keeping us awake, looking after him. So I was in really in two minds about whether to go this morning, you know, and I was almost going to say to Suzanne, you go and I'll I'll stay here with Valentino. But I dragged myself out and went out and the sun was shining. We got there nice and early, about quarter to seven. And one of the first things I picked up was another flash. This was another Yongnuo flash. It was the 460 Mark I. Um, this flash is a couple of years old. It's a fully manual flash, but you can adjust the output. So it's like another um, cousin, if you like, to the 460 Mark IIs that have added, that have got um, slaves on them as well, and they're adjustable. Um, and it's great because now I've got more flashes than I could possibly want. What I've got the, I've got one, two, three. I've got four young Nuo flashes. I've got the 
Jessup's Flash 360 AF, is it? Which is which is a manual flash and another one as well. Now, now these are all flashes that will work with my wireless system as well. So I've got more than enough. I don't need to buy any more at all. But that was really good. And I think it was two or three pounds from the seller. And I saw it sat. It looks like it's never been used. In fact, I know it's never been used because when I opened the battery compartment to have a look, the little bag of silica gel was still in there. The only problem with buying flashes is obviously when you don't, until you get home and pop some batteries in, you don't know whether they're going to work. But that, that this one definitely does. Um, and the other thing actually to watch out for is sometimes you might come across flashes like Minolta flashes or flashes that say they're compatible with Minolta cameras and they do have a different shoe mount than everybody else. So watch out for that. But that was, a, that was my first uh, bargain. Next bargain was a little voice recorder, Olympus one. I've always fancied having a nice little voice recorder just to carry around to record the podcast on, really. Um, now, this one cost me £2, but it's a little bit old. And I've had a little bit of a play with it this afternoon. And the quality is OK, but it's a little bit scratchy. And you may all say, well, it can't be much worse than what the usual audio quality of SEL is. But trust me, it's a little bit too compressed. Um, so I probably will take it with me and maybe do some podcast you know recording on the uh, on the fly when I'm out on photo walks or something like that rather than use my phone which I'm, I'm kind of using at the moment because I'm having all sorts of nightmares with microphones not working and getting loads of uh, buzz and stuff like that on my my phone so that was good I also managed to there we go <laughs> there goes a uh, a moped going past also picked up a 400 millimeter m42 lens a Prinz galaxy that was in fair condition the, the glass is okay i've given it a bit of a clean it's a bit wobbly it looks like the screws need tightening up but it, it was 400 mil lens and i think that one was three pounds so uh, that was uh, that was quite good good to play around with to clean it up put it on the m42 adapter to put it on the front of my cannon which i've already done and done it seems okay but then to stick like one of the um two t- m42 two times converters on to take it out to 800 millimeters and the, perhaps try and take some photographs of the moon um, and stars and stuff like that, which I've always fancied having a go at. But I've left probably the biggest bargain till last, and it's one of the biggest bargains that I probably ever picked up at the car boot set. Um, I was wandering along, and uh, you always see every now and again like um, camera bags on stalls. Um, and they might be open a little bit, but quite a lot of some people leave them closed. Now, this one was open, and as I was walking past, I could see there was a Canon film camera body in it. And, you know, I'm not really into buying Canon film camera bodies. Um, I probably, if I saw a Canon 50E, I'd probably buy that. But because my, um, the, the lenses I have for my digital Canon, the 350D, are um, EFS lenses, so they don't fit the, the film bodies. But anyway, so I saw it, I thought, hmm, piqued my interest a little bit. Look, had another look, and I could see a lens at the back of the bag. Got a little bit closer, and I could see those magic words 50mm on the lens. I thought, ooh, hello, here we go. Old Canon film camera, no, an EOS uh, camera, 50mm EF lens. I kind of gulped, because <laughs> you think, right, here we go, this is going to be a few quid, this. Went up to the lady, said, uh, there's a few other cameras on the stall as well, said, um, how much for the old film camera? Four pounds, she said. Four pounds. I had a quick look. I could see straight away that it was the Canon 50mm 1.8 lens with the metal mount. So it was the Mark One mount. This is the 50mm lens that has a, 
has it has the better build quality. So it has the metal mount, and it also has the the old depth of field uh, distance display on it as well. So, <laughs> needless to say, without even really looking at it or knowing whether it worked or not, I gave her the money, grabbed it, and she said, "All the bag and everything comes with it." Grabbed the bag as well and had a quick look. And I think the camera body is an ES, an EOS six hundred something or other, um, but the lens is is the proper. Um, 50mm 1.8 so I was well chuffed like that because I've been kind of thinking about saving up and buying the 50mm 1.8 because the beauty of the 50mm 1.8 is the fact that you have um, that low light capability but also you can have a very small depth of field which is great for, for portraiture and natural light portraiture outside and, and inside so I was very very excited I could see that the lens was a little bit the glass was a little bit, you know, dirty. Looks like it looks like it needed a polish. Um, but as soon as I got it home, you know, I got the lens cleaning cloths out, cleaned it all up, put it on the camera, you know, and then you have the moment of truth. You know, does it still work? Because you're not really bothered about whether the autofocus works or not, because you can use it as a manual focus lens. But do the aperture blades work? So put it on. Slide, slid through the apertures, pressing the depth of field button on the side of the camera, and all the apertures were closing very nice. Autofocus on, did, and it did. And I've taken quite a few test shots today of Valentino splashing around in the pool, and it seems very, very nice indeed. I mean, I did have a 50mm 1.8 before and had to sell it for financial reasons, but I think I'll be hanging on to this one for uh, for four pounds anyway. The only thing it's missing. Well, it was missing the front and the rear caps, but I had a spare rear cap, so I'll be looking for a new front cap on eBay. I might get a lens hood for it, I'm not sure. On the 518s, the front element is set quite a way back inside the barrel, so I don't know whether it really needs that much of a lens hood, but I'll see how much they are and, and how big they are and do it that way. Um, and with the test shots, it ca you really come across the same problem. Although you can go down to f1.8, the problem is if you're quite close to your subject and shooting f1.8 or f2, your depth of field is very, very small. So you've got to be careful with your focusing and tracking and make sure if your subject's moving, you're using something like um, servo autofocus or tracking autofocus. But um, you do get that lovely soft um, background blur. So what will be very interesting, I think, is to take the 50 um, and then take the, my 55 to 250 IS lens, you know, the telephoto, but have it at the wide end, at the 55 end, and to take some comparison shots because I really enjoy shooting with the 55 to 250 IS. It's a really nice lens, produces some really nice sharp images, and because it's the telephoto, uh, although you are at 3.5, with that longer focal length, you do get a nice blurred background. But to compare the two lenses for sharpness, and I think, although I haven't really done it on the blog before, I think I will do a proper you know, comparison test because, yeah, you know, everybody talks about how good primes are, you know, like a good prime lens that's a not a, a lens that doesn't zoom is much better than your kit zoom. But is it really, you know, do we really know the difference? So I'll set the camera up on a tripod and take some pictures in the garden using the 18 to 55, the 50 mil and the 55 to 250 to see, uh, see if it really does make it make as much of a difference. And the nifty 50s, the beauty of them. Is that the new 50 millimeter, which you know you can get on Amazon or eBay, is only, I think I was looking at on Amazon the other day, and it had gone down to something like 80 pounds with free post and packaging, which is amazing for a brand new lens. Um, the build quality isn't brilliant, but you know for for, um, 
for eighty pounds, um, it's a you know a fantastic deal. Um, so I'm really looking forward to playing around with the fifty, and it also kind of brings up now the the spectre of because I've already got the fifty one eight. You know, what would the next lens be? And I think probably you know would it be something like the eighty five one eight? Um, because that's meant to be one of the top portraiture focal lengths and and a great um, lens as well that the, the 1.8 is. Um, but anyway, but what the problem I've got now is I've now got that classic bag problem because I've gone from shooting with, um, originally just shooting with one small bag, you know, like a top loader which had the camera and the kit lens in, to having um, the uh, low pro photo runner, which re is a really nice over-the-shoulder bag with a, you can use it as a, as a bum bag as well, but it, can, it, it very easily carries the camera with the 18 to 55, then the 55 to 250 by the side of it, so I can quickly change around, and then all my spare batteries and memory cards and cleaning cloths in the side pocket. But with the 518, you know, that doesn't fit in that bag. Now, the other bag I have is the Low Pro 400 AW, which is a huge bag, which at the moment is stuffed full of flashes and M42 lenses. On my spare Canon lens, which is a 28 to 80 that I've had for a while, that the autofocus sticks sometimes on it but I've always kept it as a kind of as a spare you know if I was ever in a situation where I was um, shooting for money or something then I would take that lens along just in case I've managed to break one of the others I could put that on and it would be a last resort thing but you know so now I'm in the, in the realm of and the nice thing of, of maybe thinking about you know another bag but one that could take the 18 to 55 the body the 55 to 250 and the 518, you know, and probably a flash as well, but something not as big as the 400AW, because the 400AW is massive, and it's really easy to, to weigh it down with lots of stuff, so maybe something like a slingshot, I've always fancied uh, looking at those, but that's something for, for Christmas anyway. Well, that's enough of me rambling on about car boot stuff, but there we go, it just shows, doesn't it, you go to car boots enough, and you'll come across something like that, 518 Mark One. Canon EF lens, you know, really good condition for £4. So, Olympic photographs. What, what spurred me on with this idea was, you know, the Olympics have been on in, in London, in the UK, and sort of down in Weymouth and in various other parts of the country for the last three weeks. But most of it, well, we've watched an awful lot of it every evening, and, and the highlights as well. It's all been, it's all been video, it's all been moving images. And I haven't seen that many um, still photographs, you know, we don't get the paper here, um, and I haven't really bothered looking at any Olympic blogs and stuff, because we've been watching on telly. Um, and so, you, you know, you could ask, you know, what role does the still photographer have in a world where the BBC television company, well, corporation, streamed every single sport live? So what they did was, on digital television, they, they created all these extra channels, and so you could watch everything, you know, from the equestrian events, to the swimming, to the pinball, uh, pinball, that'd be funny if that was an Olympic event, wouldn't it, Olympic pinball, with the Who playing the uh, soundtrack, um, ping pong, um, you know, judo, everything was there, there was a channel, you know, you could watch every single thing, and you could stream it over the internet, and watch that on your computer, if you missed it, you could watch it back, you know, amazing, the fact that all this video was there, and all the coverage at the big events, you know, like 100 metres, all the athletic stuff, and the swimming, you had you know multiple cameras everywhere. You know, with the diving, they had these high-speed cameras as well that were following the, the divers down. Um, 
they had super fast cameras that they could do these amazing slow motion, um, high different high definition. We've already talked about some of the the coverage was in three D as well. So if you had a, a compatible television, you could watch the Olympics like you're almost there in three D. So you know what could the humble one five hundredth of a second view of the world that a still photograph gives us? You know what could that possibly bring? Because you know we can watch. And we did watch over again and again, replay after replay of the most dramatic moments. You know, the, the 100 metres with Usain Bolt's um, hammering down down the track and then winning. Um, Mo Farah crossing the line. Jessica Ennis um, on a 110 metre hurdles right at the beginning and then winning the 800 metres. Um, the, uh, the the triathletes, the the cyclists as well. There's lots of amazing replays of them just getting over getting over the line and the divers. And the skeet shooters, all that, that sort of stuff. You could watch the, the slow motion replays. But I tell you what, after going out and researching quite a few sites for um, Olympic photographs, for all this kind of stuff, it really is quite amazing how important the still photograph really is. So if you haven't already, go over to robnonphoto.com. On the first page, if, if you're watching, if you're listening to this um, fairly soon to the reset, you'll, you'll see the show notes for SEL 203. And there's some, some links there. I'll put the links to um, the Huffington Post Top 100 Olympic Photos, um, the Guardian's Best Photos, um, and the Telegraph's Best Photos from the Olympics as well. And maybe, you know, you might even want to pause the podcast now and go and have a look at them. Or just do a Google search for, you know, Best Olympic Photos London 2012. And and you can go through them and have a really good look. Because when you look at these images, it becomes really apparent that the captured moment, and in the captured moment, we can understand more of the effort, more of the speed, more of the strength, more of the agility, and more of the skill of these athletes. We can see all the emotion in their faces. You know, fractions of a second where where it may be despair, it may be happiness, it may be joy, it may be relief. We can see it fantastically in the still photograph. The stress in their muscles, the grace of movement of things like the gymnastics. And it's all captured in a moment in time that you don't get in a video, no matter how many times you look at it again or... Well, the only thing that comes close in video is the super slow motion, where it almost looks like a still, and it's going through. Because having watched almost three weeks of swimming, sailing, cycling, athletics, etc., but not having looked at many photographs, I feel like I've discovered a whole new part of the Olympics while looking at these great photos on the internet and in magazines subsequently. You know, so if you haven't already, I'll say it again, go over and do a Google search. And, uh, and go through some of these photographs. So, you know, what can we learn from some of these great, you know, images? Obviously, many, many things, and I'm kind of only scratching the surface. Um, but the things I've kind of picked up are, um, well, the first one is, you know, has made me think about buying a fisheye lens because there's some fantastic images used with ultra wide angle lenses. And I'm not talking about 
creating panoramas by stitching images together. These are one-offs. You know, you could only do them with a super wide lens like a fisheye or, or something like a 10 to 22 on a crop sensor camera. There's these amazing photographs of the opening and closing ceremonies where you've got the, um, the whole of the stadium in view with the fireworks coming across. Or you've got the whole of the velodrome with the cyclists going around. Um, you've got these amazing shots taking in the pool from the bottom of the pool where you can see all the swimmers, Michael Phelps et al., going across the top. Um, if you'd asked me what sort of photographs to take with a, a fisheye lens, I'd probably say like BMX ones or skateboarder ones, but this kind of really shows you. Now, you've got to be careful with a fisheye because you get massive perspective distortion, um, but some of these photos are really, really fantastic. And I guess sort of going on from the fisheye theme, lots of the photos tend to be very wide or very telephoto you know the photographers are really working the uh, the focal lengths to either emphasize line and distance um, so for example with wide angle lenses with uh, the BMX track we've got the BMX is coming over a jump and so the camera is very low pointing upwards and what a wide angle lens does it makes them appear a lot higher than they are a lot further away to other things where they're using like telephoto lenses to compress a scene so things appear closer together so that would be like the runners um, coming down the home straight um, on the 800 meters or something like that where you use a telephoto lens and it appears like they're a lot, lot closer than they actually are. Choice of vantage points. Um, most of the cameras, TV cameras, always tend to be fairly, you're looking at it from a similar situation aren't you? You do get some unusual ones but most of them aren't but you've got like the underwater cameras, they're really really good. Um, some of the most Artistic shots are the ones, there were some like taken by photographers from behind the Olympic flame and looking across. Really, really good. So, you know, these were where the photographers thought ahead and thought, look, there's thousands of photographs, well, hundreds of photographers at the Olympics, all in these boxes. In order to get a different image, I'm going to physically have to go somewhere else. And, uh, and you can, you can really tell the story sometimes by having a different point of view. Knowing your kit, you know, these guys, the things change so fast. Um, for example, like on the 100 meters where um, Usain Bolt and uh, I can't remember his, his, the, the other guy came down, didn't they? And so the, the, the photographers would have had long lenses on, you know, motor drive, blasting away. All of a sudden Usain Bolt comes running over, he's right on top of him, so they've got to flip out their second body with their wide angle lens on. And there was that magic moment, wasn't there, where um, I don't know if it was the 100 or 200, but Usain Bolt grabbed the camera off one of the photographers and started taking photos of, uh, of, of uh, the crowd and his Jamaican teammate. Absolutely magic stuff, but being able to change like the battery or the SD card or the compact flash card without even thinking about it. Absolutely, absolutely um, uh, magnificent. And also like that thing I said, like preparing for surprises. You know, anything could happen. And are you ready to whip that lens out and, and change it? Um, altering the angle, this kind of comes from choice of vantage point as well, but getting down low, getting up high, flipping the camera over on its side to add that extra sense of emotion to your photos. Some of the most effective Olympic photographs were the ones that weren't super sharp and taken at one fourth thousandth of a second, but the ones where they were using longer shutter speeds with a bit of panning to bring across the movement of um, of the of the athletes, you know, the cyclists zooming along. 
Um, there was also a, quite a few really good ones using multiple exposures. Now these were probably done, you know, on motor drive, continuous shooting, you know, six shots of a gymnast doing a somersault, but then compiling them together, you know, and it does look very effective because the, some of these athletes move so fast that in a single photograph or a single piece of video, you, it doesn't come across how amazing it is what they're doing. But with a continuous shooting, you know, seven shots, you know, in in a third of a second, you get a, a really sense of what the, what they're doing. Knowing your subject, you know, so knowing what happens during a hockey match um, when there's a foul, knowing what could possibly happen after an 800 meters, knowing the athletes, how they behave, the sort of um, victory celebrations they might do, um, just sim simply knowing the rules and things, um, so, so you know what order is going to happen as well. You know, so if you're shooting the Olympics in the athletics, you know what's coming on next, um, and kind of allied to this is the idea of vision as well. So. Look, being able to look at a, 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 a um, order of events, for example, and thinking, okay, so when when the 800 meter, when the shot puts on, I want to be here and I want to take this kind of photograph, and having in your head what roughly that might kind of look like, so you can set set yourself up for it. But being ready to prepare for the unknown and to take advantage of things, um, to take different looking photographs, but having that vision, you know, knowing what you can achieve I think is, is very very important and most important of all luck you know take lots and lots of shots thousands and thousands of them. you can bet that you know like the, the, the say the photographers that got the front page of I don't know the Daily Mail or the Times or the Sun you know, in order to get that one photograph on that cover of that paper they probably had to take two or three thousand photographs during the day you know, and that I, I kind of say this quite a lot, but I think it's very, very important. We kind of sometimes get lulled into this idea that the great photographs kind of walk into a room and they look around and they see the shots and they click and they've done it and they're gone. You know, the idea of like Henri Cartier-Bresson doing that or Ansel Adams setting up his tripod with his one sheet of film left and putting the filter on and then click, where for the rest of us, for the rest of us mortals... And most professional photographers as well, they will take hundreds and hundreds of photographs to get that one image. Because half the time, you don't really know if you've got it. it it's, you, you read in interviews and hear on podcasts where photographers say, oh, you know, when you've got, you know, you know you've got it. But I don't know, you may think you've got it, but it might be slightly out of focus because you can't tell on the back of that camera screen whether it's really there or not. So I would say, you know, take lots and lots and lots of photographs. But, you know, perhaps the last thing we can take for these, these, um, these photographs is how important stills still are in a world becoming more and more dominated by video. So when you see people talking, uh, we hear people talking about, you know, fusion and crossover, how important video is, you know, trust me, stills are still <laughs> the most important way I think that as we as photographers can really capture our vision of the world and show some incredibly powerful images. Another thing we can take from the Olympics, aside from the photography um, part of it, is 
how dedicated these Olympic athletes are, and the, the you know and the inspiration of aiming for a goal, even though it might be several years away. So, as a kind of final thought for this podcast, take a few minutes to think about where you'd like to be photographically in 2016, and think about how you could achieve those goals as an Olympic athlete would. Athlete would. So, you know, when Rio's on. Maybe we'll all be doing what we want to do in terms of photography. Okay, so that's it for this week. Thanks to everybody on the RobinOnPhoto.com group over on Flickr. Thanks to the people who comment on the blog. Thanks to Everyday Jones who do the intro and outro music. But most of all, thanks to you for downloading and listening to the podcast. My name's Rob from RobinOnPhoto.com. You can email me, scalespeeder at gmail.com. And hopefully, pretty soon... I'll see you on Flickr.